Well, good morning. How are you doing? Good? I'm Trevor Oaks. I'm the student and teaching pastor here. And uh, man, that is just one story, right? We know in a, a room like there, there, there's numerous stories uh, of your life, how you came to know Christ and, and your story with, with Him. And so um, this whole, whole uh, kind of month we're doing uh, these hot topics. And so Today, before we dive into any of that, though, I really wanted to just say uh, thank you to a, a group of people who allow me to do what I do. They um, fight for our country. They have defended the freedoms that I get to enjoy, and we live in an amazing country. And so uh, if you are a veteran, we would love for you to just stand. I know you don't often love praise, but if, if, if you're a veteran, we would love for you to stand and at least allow us to say thank you. Absolutely. So thank you uh, very much. And also, um, my brother lives out in California, and so that's kind of near and dear to my heart, kind of riding around the area where the fires are right now. And so uh, if you'd be in prayer for them, we live in a, a crazy world, don't we, uh, where so much happens on a regular basis that just isn't in right. Um, and so if you'd be in prayer for them, uh, I'd be appreciative of that. Um, this morning, we continue with our series, Neon. Like a like beam of light glowing in the darkness, a hot topic of concerns and considerations and, and things that we know are all real issues that we need to deal with, but we're hoping to have some bold reflections, uh, some truth that we believe God speaks to the midst of these topics. And today, my hope would be this, is to flesh out a very real topic in a way that does so from a position of, of love. And so, uh, hear that from this morning, uh, the very off the top, I come from a place uh, of love. And uh, today, during the whole talk, it would be my recommendation to not look to your left or to your right. Uh, don't elbow your spouse. I mean, I see that. I, I can see that clearly from, from up here. And so, because here's the deal, everyone's nervous, all right? We're all nervous uh, for a couple of things. Number one, we don't know what I'm going to say. And I'm bold enough to just potentially say all the things that we're afraid of. And number two, we don't know what I'm going to say. And so uh, a lot of nervous energy, fear of the unknown. But I would say uh, there is a strong possibility that you need to rethink how you think about sex. Because uh, I think for a long time the church has done a disservice to its people, not talking about sex in a healthy way or, or in any way at all, to totally remove it from the conversation. And what we've done in place is allowed culture to shape our ideas, concepts, and philosophies on how-tos and the what's good about sex. And often we come into a church, and here's what we hope. We hope, man, give me the right answers. Give me something right so that I can make it into heaven or I can do whatever. I just want to know uh, what's right. But but I think what God would say is, you'll live right when your heart is in line with, with my heart. And think about it. Not talking about sex, because it's complicated or difficult, it's challenging, whatever that is, has missed out on an opportunity to let everyone know what God actually says. His design, his plan is for this great gift from, for, for two people to come together in a committed relationship who, uh, he is a loving God, Right? And gives good gifts to his people. Amen, right? So today, your first battle will be this. You need to rethink how you currently think about sex. Or maybe you need to unthink what culture has taught us and allow God's bold answers for a topic to be revealed. So when was the last time that you were enticed? 
You were drawn away into your desires. You followed those desires. You chased it down whatever trail that led you to. When was the last time you were enticed? And James chapter 1 says this, and remember when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone. Temptation comes from our own desires, and, it, and our own desires drag us away. They entice us, and these desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, when it's allowed to, to fester, it, it gives birth to death. So temptation is never a dangling carrot by which God puts it out there to see if you'll be obedient this time or the next time. God is not tempting you to test you, but rather temptation comes from your desires that kind of roll around in your head, in your heart. And temptation, once we follow through in those efforts, leads to sin. And sin, when we become accustomed to it, when we become comfortable with it, it leads to death. So how many of you enjoy cake? It's a real question. You can raise your hand. If you are a cake lover, that's fine. That's great. Um, I am not a a sweet tooth kind of guy. I prefer a salty snack to to sweet, um, but I will enjoy cake on my birthday. Uh, And we have a a cake that we enjoy in our family. It's called Alley Pally Cake in our household from a student in Virginia. They introduced it to us. Um, But its more well-known name is probably better than Sex Cake. And so the cake is a lot of chocolate, like smashed into one slice. It takes about two gallons worth of milk in order to eat it. Um, And so here's the thing. At a birthday party, not one person will look at you odd if you eat cake. Not one person. I mean, everybody is expected to have cake. Uh, I know this because I've been to multiple parties at which they will always say, do you want a piece of cake? And I'm like, no. And they'll look at me like, you know, something's wrong with you. Uh, you. You must be dieting or whatever. But even if you are dieting at a birthday party, it is just natural to know that you will have some cake. And uh, here's the thing. So you're at said party. You're enjoying your slice of cake. When you look across the room and what you notice is that somebody else's cake looks better than yours. It's bigger, it has more icing, whatever that is, and you like, you want that slice of cake. And so people would think you lost your ever-loving mind if you went over, sat beside them, and just started to enjoy their cake. I'd be like, what's, what's wrong with you? But uh, when it was on the cooking sheet, you had every opportunity to have that slice of cake. But now that it's on their plate, that's their food. And so that would be odd. But let's say this, the party's over and the cake has been enjoyed, but there's still more cake left. Leftover pieces, you know what I mean? It's downstairs in your kitchen and you are in your bed minding your own business. When you hear that cake calling out to you, just one more slice. So you go downstairs to your kitchen, you get out your plate and you enjoy just one more slice. And no sooner than you have washed your dish and you hear it calling one more piece, and you think, I will indulge this one time, and you do have one more slice of cake. And that would be absurd, right? I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot of cake. And, and, and here's the deal. Let's say this. The cake is long gone. It's been gone for days. Um, but you go in your room and pull up pictures from the party so that you can look at cake and, and you pull up pictures online. You want to see other pieces of cake and lots of cake. And you are just taking in all sorts of cake and cake recipes, reading the ingredients and drooling about what would that taste like if you could actually enjoy a slice of that right now. You just stare at images of cake for hours. You know what people would say? You have a cake problem. You have a problem with cake. It wouldn't even be a question. If you're staring at images of cake in your room, dreaming of eating and enjoying cake, guess what? You have cake problems, but we're not talking about cake, are we? No, we're not. 
But if cake is controlling your life, you should probably rethink how you think about cake, right? So what does the Bible have to say about cake? Nothing. (laughs) It's not in there. Don't go looking. There's nothing that the Bible says about cake. But the Bible has a lot to say about sex, marriage, and overindulging, eating too much, drinking too much. And while that, uh, this is not a sermon on gluttony, it's not. Uh, We are Americans, however, and we indulge in whatever we want. Uh, Social media, alcohol, sex, food, shopping, you name it, we do it. Land of the free, home of the brave. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, ultimately that good thing can become a very destructive thing. When a good thing like food, like clothing, like people, a good thing that God designed for us to enjoy uh, becomes an ultimate thing, sits on the ultimate throne of your heart, it can become a destructive thing. It can be the thing that actually separates you between uh, God. It can stand between you and your spouse, stand between you and the better way that God has planned for us. So, see where this is going today? Uh, God has a design. He has a purpose, a plan for everything. And Genesis 2 kind of helps us flesh that out this morning. And so uh, we're going to dive into God's heart, his plan for uh, this thing called sex. So Genesis 2 verse 15 says this, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat freely from any tree that you wish in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will be sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So there's so much going on in those verses right there. The Lord God placed the man in the garden. And that's intentionality. God has purpose behind why he does what he does. He gives Adam a job. You will tend to the garden. You will take care of what I am giving to you. And what I love is this. My old professor, Doug Marks, who, who really shaped a lot of my, my thinking, helped me with, uh, in teaching ministries of the church, he says this. It's important. I feel like we are searching after a couple of things in this life. Everybody wants a couple of things. We want purpose and intimacy. And the world has taken that word intimacy, and when we hear it, we think of cake. I mean sex. Uh, and so, but that is not intimacy at all. Intimacy is being fully known and transparent. And we all want purpose, to have value, to have worth, to know that we're seen in in our job, in our our families, in our friendships, whatever that is. We want to have purpose for for this life. Uh, We want to be seen and be known and, and, and intimate. So God places Adam in the garden to tend to it and to take care of it. And he looks around, and what God notices from his creation, that while it is good, there is no suitable partner to know who Adam is, to be intimate with. And yes, intimacy does include sex. And so God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And if you are currently alone, that might be why you feel this push towards something or or towards someone. If you are lonely, uh, that is why you might subject yourself to sleeping around or to getting into something that you know is not good. If you feel alone, and, and here's the deal, in this series, we're going to be talking about mental health and some of the concerns with that hot topic, alone can wreak havoc on your life. But by design, God said, Adam needs a helper. And this is also important to note. What happens if they touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil? They'll die. They'll disobey. They'll usher in sin. And sin's penalty, the wage of our sin, is death. 
In Genesis 2.22, it goes on. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, he exclaimed, this one is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. It's an interesting verse right there. In the midst of creation, uh, he defines what marriage is. So two people leave father and mother. Uh, they are joined as husband and wife. Now, verse 25 says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And in the beginning, God's plan, his design, was that two people would come together, and that union would be the ultimate form of intimacy. They would fulfill in each other purpose and intimacy, being fully known, naked, exposed in the most vulnerable of ways, and yet that would cause no shame. What I know from most relationships is that the topic we're talking about today has ushered in plenty of shame. There are several of you here today that had shame placed on the very act of sex. It brings up haunting nightmares. Someone who should have been trusted, should have valued you, did not consider your worth, your purpose, and caused great shame. And listen, for that man, I am sorry. There are so many here in this room because of what we are talking about today and what your spouse did. They watched images on a screen. They took part in an affair that caused shame, doubt, grief in your home. And now you're tearing down the walls that shame built. You're trying to find intimacy again. You want to take steps towards trust and and building back up better walls. And God placed it in us all, right? The desire to have a helper to be understood. Some of you live in solitude, but you hear sex and guilt consumes your face. You're washed in the sea of shame and you don't know what to say. So what did God intend? What does God hope for us Why is this world so consumed and yet so torn apart by sex? Genesis 3 says this, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? The serpent, or you can say Satan, was the shrewdest. Now do you know what that word actually translates to? It's really interesting to me. Translates to prudent or wise. Except in this instance, it's utilized in a negative way. So you could say crafty, cunning. Uh, Most of you likely know what you struggle with. You know the things that tempt you, entice you, that draw you away from the heart of God. But did you anticipate that Satan would arrive on the scene as a snake? Satan comes to disguise himself and allure us away with crafty conversations, questions that doubt the authority of the creator, the purpose of the designer. Satan wants to scrutinize God's truth until you can rationalize your sin. Satan wants to scrutinize God's truth until you can rationalize your sin. Did God really say? And the truth is, God did. He did actually say, you eat of that fruit and it will usher in death. You will surely and most certainly die. Genesis 3, 6 says, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. Its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would provide. So she took it, and she ate it. See, the lie worked. She was convinced that God was hiding something from her. God was hiding this better way, and if she took this fruit, she would be wise. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is steady. And she saw that the fruit was beautiful. It looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom that it would provide. And all avenues that we take to our own sin, right? We see something that looks like a desirable and satisfying thing, and we want that. 
We might even be a, a characteristic of God. We want pleasure, we want intimacy, we want to be known, and we will do whatever it takes to get it. We think, I, I don't care if God said that same-sex attraction is wrong or sinful. I love them, and God created love, and so it, it must be right, and so we chase after it. Maybe you think today that looking at images on a screen isn't hurting anyone, but the truth is you have taken this good thing and you've put it on a pedestal and you've made it something ultimate in your life that you have to have in your life and it is destroying you. you, you your self-gratification and the quietness of your room, enjoying your desires is drawing you away into sin and, and sin's ultimate outcome is death. We have allowed Satan's craftiness to lead us down roads we never anticipated we would ever travel. Genesis 3, 6 says this, So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed some fig leaves together to cover themselves. At that moment, and I bet you can go back to an at that moment in your life. Uh, I bet you can draw back the smell in the air, the feeling of the day, the moment when shame grabbed hold of your chest and ripped your heart out. And Adam and Eve are experiencing that right now in the garden. You see, God said, here is my purpose for you. This is my plan, naked and no shame. I want you to be open and honest. Experience the fullness of life in a way that causes no shame. Explore each other naturally and intimately. And I'm telling you, there is something for everyone in this sermon today. So if it doesn't violate your spouse or bring shame, go for it. What does that mean? Well, I believe that God created our body to experience pleasure on purpose. He created our bodies to do uh, things when stimulated that actually bring about pleasure. So if it does, and it does not bring shame, go for it. There you go. However, the moment that Adam and Eve experience what God told them, this will usher in death, this will actually destroy this thing I created, when they took a bite of that fruit, it was like a neon sign shining in the darkness for all to see. What happened? They felt shame. What they do with that shame? Well, they hide, just like the rest of us. Whenever we know that what we have done is not appropriate, it's not right, we hide. They covered their body in this new thing called fig leaves. It was the latest rage. Uh, they thought, I don't know what this is, but I feel like I shouldn't be naked. It feels wrong. And so they covered up their bodies. They deleted the text. They erased their history. They hide. And they continue. Genesis 3 verse 8 says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to them, man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you were naked? God said. Have you eaten from the tree of the fruit I commanded you not to eat? So God had created them to have communion with him, to have a relationship with him. They walked with God in the garden. They had this intimacy that was never before known. And when they heard God coming, they hide. They actually tried to find a way to get away from God. Why did you hide, Adam? Because I heard you coming and I was afraid because I was naked. And that was God's indicator. See, this God did not create fear. Created you to be vulnerable, to be with the helper, to be open and exposed, intimate, to feel purpose, value, respect, to feel love. But you feel shame. Because we, we took God's purpose his desire for our life, and we desired our own way. 
And you might say, I don't get what this has to do with sex. Well, it has everything to do with God's plan for intimacy. To occur between a husband and a wife who are in a committed covenant relationship. That's how it works best. That was his design, his plan from the beginning, how it should take place. And everything else, everything else that you discuss about sex is giving them over to their sexual perversion. So it it is not natural to have sex with an animal. There you go. God said that it is not what I designed to be a helper for intimacy. Remember, God looked around all of his creation. He said it was good, but it was not right for Adam to be known, loved, respected, and seen. So don't have sex with animals. There you go. Uh, I say that one because it's a little bit easier than the next one. God said it is not natural for a man to lie with another man or a woman with another woman in a way that is intimate. That's not how I designed it. And when you do, you will feel shame, but God allows it. And you can actually enjoy pleasure from it. But it's not best or what he designed. In Romans, he talks about how he gave them over to their evil desires to do what they know they ought not do. Why? Because he made them, created them, and he loves their desires. And you see, it it looked good. It looked beautiful. It looked delicious. Look like it would satisfy for a season or a moment. And so you take it, you eat it, and the next thing you know, you're hiding from God. Matthew 5, 27 says this. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Anyone? Heard that? But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to sin, well, to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So Jesus is doing this epic sermon on a mountainside. You know what they called it? Sermon on the Mount. So creative. They almost went with neon. It was so close. Uh, Jesus is teaching about adultery, and he says this, the only way that you can partake in adultery is if you are married and you physically cheat on your spouse with someone else. No, not what he says. He says you can fulfill the desires of your heart. And listen, that's important, your heart, all right? You can fulfill the desires of your heart by looking at someone in a way that satisfies the reason that you're looking at them. And if your eye is causing your heart to deceive your body, entice your body, Gouge it out. Why? Because it's better to lose your eye than to fall out of communion, relationship with God. It's not his purpose. It's not better. And if your hand, even your good hand, causes you to sin, I wonder what he could possibly be talking about. But the paragraph above it probably gives us a good indicator. The context clues allows us to know he is actually talking what you think he's talking about. And so, When I read some commentaries uh, this week on that uh, passage, it says self-gratification. And our modern term for that would be masturbation. And this is not a male issue, right? This is a people problem. So if you, male or female, allow your desires to entice you, and you satisfy that by yourself from looking at something or reading about something or thinking through the motions of something that you want, married, single, college guy, doesn't matter. Guess what God says about that? That's not my plan. Cut your hand off. Stop. Don't fulfill that desire. But do you really think that's what God ultimately means? Like, cut your arm off. Really? 
I mean, do you really want me to go chopping off appendages, God, because I have a lust issue? I don't think that's the problem at all. You know it. Up in your room, staring at images of cake, cut your lips off. I don't think that's what God is saying. That's not the problem. You do currently desire sex, but sex is not your problem. The problem is the desire of your heart. You have a heart issue. You want something different than God's heart for your life. So what's next? Maybe you're thinking, I'm head deep in an affair. I'm currently living with someone who is not my spouse. I've yet to commit to them. But man, this is financially better for us. This is actually better, but it's not what God says is best. You know that the Bible doesn't really address living together before marriage? It does say this, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. And did you know the verses above that, so uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 8, say this, that you shouldn't withhold sex from your spouse. You should mutually respect each other. But if you do choose to withhold that intimate act, guess what? Your spouse will probably struggle with self-control. And so it's necessary to achieve a unity together so you don't burn with lust for another. So what's next? The issue is not a sex issue. God created, designed, and thought up this wonderful gift of sex. The issue is with our heart. We have allowed a good thing to become an ultimate thing, and ultimately that is destroying us. Romans 12:2 says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed then by the renewing of your mind. Then you will test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Satan would love nothing more than to allow the world and its customs, its patterns to deceive you, that you think it will satisfy you for a season, for a moment, whatever that is. And guess what? It will entice you, will draw you away if you partake in it, but it will lead to your destruction. Maybe it's possible you need to rethink how you view sex, how you view God's purpose for your life. And maybe you can test what God says is a better way and see if it isn't pleasing and perfect. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, for everything you do flows from it. Listen, everything flows from your heart. And if you can guard it, guide it, and give it to God's purposes, then that's what it will do for your life. So, what's next? Well, I think that's a good question, but it's different for everybody in this room. Some of you know that what you are doing isn't right, helpful, or healthy. And if you're struggling with sexual integrity, the kind that would have both eyes and hands cut off, gouged out, don't worry, you're not alone. I have a a study that I've been through many times with several brothers in Christ who need a a nudge back on the path that leads towards truth in a better way. They needed to retrain their, their heart how to think about better things. It's called proven men. But again, it's not just a man issue, right? And so uh, they are actually getting ready to release proven women as well. So we have about six to seven men who are trained on that study who want to walk through that with anybody who's hurting. So, so that could be your next step. That's possible. Maybe you and your spouse need to reimagine your life together. There's several good helps for this. And one I've utilized before, it's called Five Steps to Romantic Love. Now I'll say this, it is incredibly cheesy. It, it really is. 
But the content is good. So if you can get past the cheese and utilize the tool, it could lead to good discussions that lead to a better, more fulfilling marriage. And maybe that's your next step. I don't know. You might actually need to talk to someone to receive some guidance. And I wish that counseling didn't have such a negative connotation, right? Wellspring is a great tool for that, for when you're scared. It may not be marriage or or those sort of problems. You might be single, and yet you're struggling with this very thing of of sex. It's controlling your, your life. Counseling has helped so many out of some very dark days, reshape their heart, and allowed them to see God's better way for their life to create some strategies for healthier times as it pertains to sexual integrity. I think the best verse that that you can know and look at is Philippians 4.8. It says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable, right and pure, lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And the key is heart change kind of change that allows what we do and say to our spouse, to our neighbor, to those around us, what we think inside our heads to be pleasing and praising to God. So you need to rethink, reprogram your heart and life about sex and allow God to guide you toward a better way. Now, I'll be in the lobby after this talk. And if you would like some help, I would love to speak into the midst of that. Daniel, Drew, any one of our staff would love to talk to you. And here's the deal. At Calvary, we've grown. There is a lot of you now. And I don't know everybody's name. So in a means to which somebody could actually come up with to me and have a conversation, here's my plan. Today, I need everyone to come up to me and shake my hand and tell me your name. All right? I don't know everybody's name. But that will allow somebody who actually needs to say something else to me an opportunity to do that in private. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a a great and awesome God. You uh, knew us before we were even born. You loved us. Because of that love, you uh, created a way for us to always be with you. Lord, in the midst of my weakness, in the midst of, of my shame and hiding, you call me out of hiding and you reconnect me back to the source of life. So God, I don't know where people sit in the midst of this room, but Lord, my prayer is that they could reignite their desire, their hearts, their passions for you and watch as you retrain us. You show us your better way, your truth that surpasses all understanding. Lord, I love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.